0: Hello, is this thing on?
1: Of course it is. They can definitely hear us.
0: Yeah, we're in our fourth season. There's no silencing us now.
1: Welcome to the Gritty Nurse Podcast, an unfiltered discussion on health and healthcare. My name is Amy Archibald Burley. And I'm Sarah Fung, and we are your podcast hosts. Please make sure that you subscribe
0: to our new YouTube channel where you can watch our podcast in video format. Please hit the subscribe
1: button. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or any other podcast platform, leave us a rating and review.
0: Welcome everyone to the Greener's podcast. We're so excited to have you here and to listen to conversations. We're actually going to be talking about something that's super important to myself and Sarah. We've had this conversation time and time again, but we can't have more. We can't have too many conversations about mental health. So we're excited that we have a really great guest. And before I get into it, Sarah, please introduce our guest for today.
1: I am so excited to be talking again about mental health. I think this is super important. We've been advocating for better mental health supports for a long. Time. It's one of the pillars of our podcast. And so, without further ado, I'd love to introduce Mina B. She is a writer, author, and founder of Mina B. Consulting, a mental health consulting practice that works with organizations to help them develop psychological safety and become mental health inclusive. She is also a licensed mental health professional and worked as a therapist specializing in treating depression, anxiety, and trauma. As an expert in her field, Mina sits on the Mental Health Advisory Committee for Wondermind, a mental fitness company co-founded by Selena Gomez. Welcome, Mina. We're so glad to have you today.
2: Hi, thank you so much for having me.
1: I think it's really great that you've done all this work and especially um, being part of so many different initiatives and your book that you've written. I was just wondering if you could tell us a bit about yourself and your journey to becoming a mental health professional.
2: Mm hmm. Um, So, what made me get into this field is pretty much my own struggles with depression, um, anxiety that stems from childhood. And um, I think I always wanted to explore what was wrong with me, why I was feeling the things that I was feeling. And that really set me on a journey to really want to explore our mental health as well as human behavior more. And that is what made me decide to become a social worker. So I earned my degree in my master's in particular from NYU. And my NYU program um, is really clinical focused, hence why I worked as a therapist treating clients who struggle with anxiety, depression and trauma primarily with women. I also worked in Early Head Start here in New York City, where I worked as a mental health consultant with children ages zero to five, helping them on their social and emotional development, while also providing workshops and parenting programs to teachers, as well as the parents um, to the children in a school. So it wasn't until 2021 that I started to transition to doing corporate wellness now, where I founded my mental health consulting practice, where I work with organizations, organizations to help them develop psychological safety. And that looks like me doing work around workshops, keynote talks, consulting. And then lastly, I released a book last month in August. So the title of my book is Owning Our Struggles, A Path to Healing and Finding Community in a Broken World. And it is just a resource to help people learn how to heal from trauma and many other mental health related issues through community care.
0: Yeah, that's, that sounds so amazing. And we both had the opportunity to read your book. And we're so grateful that this conversation is continuing. And I could tell that just from what you've said, you have a wealth of knowledge. And you know, I think personal experience is so hugely important. Sarah and I talk about the power of storytelling. Um, we don't talk about our stories often enough and particularly in this day and age of you know uh, social media you you tend to see the best side of everybody, right? You hear about you know what that person's outfit is or you know how great their day has been or all of these wins. but we don't talk about those things that mean the most to us and some of, and those struggles that we might be having. So I'm really grateful that um, you know you're talking about owning our own your our own struggles and how important that is as a racialized woman as well. so, In your book, Owning Our Own Struggles, A Path to Healing and Finding Community in a Broken World, um, as nurses and women of color, many topics of your book resonate with us. Why do you think it's so hard for people like us to set up boundaries in our personal and professional lives and to have conversations like this? Mm
2: -hmm. Well, I think it's deeply ingrained in our culture to wear the superwoman cape. Right, Um, Mm -hmm. and feel as if you have to do it all and have to be everything to everyone. Um, I think that it's rooted in our ancestral trauma of caretaking. And I think that caretaking has evolved in many ways um, from what it used to be during periods of enslavement um, or even systemic oppression, right? I think caretaking now manifests as us Stepping up as emotional support systems in the workplace, us stepping up as emotional support systems in literally every relationship that we are exposed to or a part of. And I also think that it looks like us having to carry this burden of not being able to break or not being able to struggle, this feeling that we... Don't have the luxury of struggling, you know. And I think a big part of this work is really helping people put that take that cape off, put down those burdens that they carry, and really realize that Black women and women of color do deserve rest, and it's not something that we have to earn. Um, it is choice, and it is a choice that is available to us. And so when we Use discernment to reflect about around the things happening in our lives and the way we give. We can also be wise and recognize what are we giving ourselves and when is it time for us to shift culture and shift what is the norm to say the new normal is women of color taking care of themselves and not being a caretaker and caring for everyone and everything and neglecting themselves in the process.
1: Mm -hmm. That's really powerful. And I think that a lot of what you just spoke to is deeply ingrained into nursing culture as well, to where we feel like we have to be everything to everyone. And because nurses are the ones that spend the most time with the patient, whenever there's a task that needs to be done, it always falls to the nurse. And if you talk to most nurses, they're actually really bad at saying no and setting up boundaries. And I think that we need to start changing that culture and really empowering women, and especially women of color, to set healthy boundaries for themselves. Um, one of the things that I talk about is, as well is that as nurses, we learn to care for others, but never ourselves. We learn to advocate for others, but never ourselves. And this is something that I want to encourage people to start doing because I think it's really important.
0: Yeah, and I think that, you know, the the aspect of just that that, like you mentioned about rest, I think that, um, I think about my career and I think about the times where we feel that we just can't, like, we feel that, like, if we don't do it, if we keep, don't keep going, um, that no one else will be able to pick up the pieces. And I think that, you know, as a woman, we see this in various different roles, whether like, you know, we both are, Sarah and I are both mothers as well. We're, we're wives, we're friends, we're partakers. And I feel like, all of these various different things makes us sometimes feel like we have to do it all. We can't say no. If we say no, the house of cards are going to come down. Or if we say no, things are going to break down. And it, it's it's kind of this fallacy. It's not true. <laughs> we know it's not true. Uh, the world will continue to operate with us or without us. And I think that was kind of a reality that I had. Um when we were going through our own mental health struggles, when we were working um, at a hospital and we both were bullied and um, treated very poorly. Again, this is probably not a topic for today, but there's a lot of racism within nursing and as racialized nurses, we kind of um, get the brunt of it because sometimes we have to be the ones still caring for these people who are treating this us this way. But uh, just kind of bringing it back around was um, the fact that, you know, um, it was actually a little campaign I saw by Meg The Stallion like about two weeks ago. And it was like, bad bitches have bad, dates, that bad days too. And um, I think she, she actually said something about like, you know, um, they say that black don't crack. And it's like, but we do. We can crack. And I was just like, yeah, that's true. Like, we need to be able to say that we struggle too. And it's okay to ask for that help.
1: Definitely. And I think that within nursing and even with uh, a lot of different cultures, there's so much stigma with mental health. And I know in my particular culture, mental health issues are seen as a sign of weakness. It's seen as um, we need to figure out why or who to blame for this particular issue. So I'm wondering if you have any sort of insights on why there's still so much stigma um, around mental health, particularly with uh, communities of color.
2: Well, I think when we, talk about stigma, it is important to think about the inception of how the stigma came up. And the reality is in our country, you know, mental health care and healthcare care in general wasn't necessarily designed for people of color in the first place. Hence why still in this present time, people still deal with medical racism in the ER, whether you're in a private doctor's office or even in a therapy room. You know, you can still deal with medical racism because of people's inability to engage in cultural competence and also not managing their own subconscious bias and really being reflective enough to understand the different ways racism can be overt as well as covert. And so I think those um, stigmas still persist because um, it's a form of intergenerational trauma. Honestly, you know, I think that there is a lot of distrust, and that distrust is valid. And I think that the onus has been put on people of color to change that distrust versus systems improving so that we can feel safe enough to engage in these systems in the first place. So I think that that is why stigma is still prevalent. However, I am happy to see that um, people of color are also. Actively stepping up to just talk about mental health. And I think when we see people of our own doing things, it creates a sense of safety because, you know, for a really long time, mental health was always considered a white person's problem. And it was because white people were always vocal about having eating disorders. They were always vocal about dealing with depression. Um, Whenever we heard cases of suicide, sometimes statistically we would hear that it was white people dying by suicide. And I think now that more research studies are also including people of color and people of color are being more vocal, we're also able to see that, no, we suffer too, um, but we also have to create safe spaces for us to feel comfortable enough to shift this culture and feel brave enough to talk about our mental health issues.
0: Yeah, that's so true, because like I think about... Like my, my own family background, so like my parents are um, from the Caribbean. My parents are Jamaican, and I think about even you know how they talked about mental health um, when I was a young child. Actually, those words were never used. I'll be honest; those words were never never came out of their mouth. And I think it's it's very interesting now to see the change, right? I, I My mom had a an opportunity because we do. I have a brother who has bipolar, and um, we had the opportunity to meet Margaret Trudeau, and she has bipolar disorder as well, and I'm. Um, just to see the change in my parents' generation of understanding that, you know, it is trauma that caused us to, you know, shy away from these conversations, to have these conversations, to treat our family members in a particular way. And, I, I, and I'm hopeful to see that there is change, even in those generations that are, are you know, um, we'd call them boomers, but are, are much older than us, that we are starting to see those changes. And again, slowly within our workplaces, again, you're right, 100%, when, when our co- communities have these conversations, it does build trust, it does build that safety, because I don't think it was there for a very long time time I think that again there was so much stigma surrounded uh, surrounding talking about mental health and again it was how you know i'd say folks or oppressors would view individuals from a historical standpoint uh, particularly black individuals with mental health and how they would kind of almost demonize an individual for having a disorder that they might say you know for a white individual is this but for a black individual it's something else and i think that you know we're starting to see that change it's it's a slow change but it's it's a positive one that you know we're having the conversation mm-hmm. And that there are more caregivers and practitioners that are racialized too. So again, very hopeful for um, these continued conversations. Again, you shared many difficult stories in your book and how it often begins with adverse childhood experiences that get repeated in within the next generation. So in nursing, in nursing, we call this uh, "eating our young." How do you think we can break these cycles? Um, and you know, really, um, what else might you? suggest that we can do to continue um, talking about, you know, um, our childhood uh, adverse experiences and how can we, you know, change the dialogue in relation to all of that?
2: I think we have to shift culture because I think that a lot of these adverse childhood experiences people have experienced, we have swept it under the rug and normalized it as normal behaviors versus adverse behaviors, you know, and I think that... What I'm happy to see happening is people speaking up, for example, and saying things like being spanked as a child actually did not play a role in my evolvement in life or my success. It was abuse. Like it, I think it's time for us to name things that happen in our culture that this is not normal. One, this is a f- form of post-traumatic slave syndrome, and it's harmful. Hence why there are also laws in place that say you should not do these things. But culturally, we do it and we say that this is how you discipline a child and this is how um, you teach a child to be respectful. Um, and really all you're doing is teaching a child how to be submissive and how to be a people pleaser um, and not to live with PTSD in their body. And so I do think that if we want to see see a shift in our culture, we have to start naming things that made us feel uncomfortable in childhood, and we also have to make a choice as adults now to do things different for the next generation, whether it's the children we have birthed or the children that we are in community with because I truly believe that community care is child care. You know, I think that we should be thinking about how we raise children to be emotionally healthy. How we raise children to be regulated, self-regulated, and they can only regulate when they are modeling that behavior from an adult. And so I think that we have to just be more conscious and mindful of the ways we operate in a broken society and how intergenerational trauma still manifests for us as individuals so that we can be doing the healing work so that we're not taking it out on children.
0: Wow, that's that's Mm -hmm. so powerful. And just Sarah, before you jump in there with a question, I just have another follow up. You did mention that you have conversations with little ones. So I think you said from zero to five years old, how might we start the conversation with our small children or how might some of our listeners that might be listening? How might we start having conversations about mental health and mental well-being with our little our youngest, littlest folks?
2: Yeah, I think the first thing is really teaching them. Um, how to name their feelings? You know, when I worked in the classroom, we always had feeling charts, for example, up on the wall. For when a child was expressing a really big emotion, whether they were crying or yelling or screaming or even using their bodies like hitting or kicking, um, we would really help the child identify what are you feeling in your body and also validate it. instead of saying things like, stop crying right now, Or instead of saying things like, you don't have to be sad, we acknowledge it. We acknowledge that an emotion is passing through you right now. And I get that this is really hard, you know? And so these are some alternative things that we can do, or these are some things that we can do to just manage that really difficult feeling. So teaching children how to engage their nervous system. Right, teaching kids. Maybe these are some ways that we can meditate with one another. Um, you know, I, I I love little tricks in the classroom where I'll say, "Let's pretend to smell a candle right now and take a big, deep breath in as you smell and inhale, and now blow the candle out as you exhale." Right, and doing little things like that to teach children how to regulate their bodies, giving them books that help to speak to the language of what they're experiencing and also how they impact other kids around them too, because. Children also know the feelings of what it means to be bullied, what it means to be ostracized. But we also have to teach our kids boundaries, right? And so this kid doesn't want to play with me right now. And maybe right now we have to honor what that kid needs in the moment. But it doesn't mean that you are unlikable. It doesn't mean you're unlovable. But in order to have these skills, you as a parent, you as a caregiver, um, you as a community member, aunt, uncle, whatever your role is, you have to be able to do this for yourself if you're going to teach a child um, how to handle rejection or how to handle really big emotions. And so those are some techniques that I used in the classroom with children. Um, and also, I, I love engaging in dramatic play with kids. You know, give this is a window into your world. And so let's set up a scenario and like let's see how you walk through this particular really hard situation using dolls and toys and dramatic play for me to have a clear understanding of what's happening for you in your own internal world and how you perceive this thing. And I think that we also have to engage in play and curiosity with kids so that we have a clear understanding of what they're growing through. But literally everything I also named for kids, we as adults should be doing with ourselves. (laughs) You know, we need to engage in play and curiosity to really understand how this big situation impacted us emotionally, right? And maybe I need to step away and go on an adventure and use that as my form of dramatic play to really self-reflect and understand um, what was happening to me in that moment and why this really big feeling manifested when I was exposed to this particular form of stimuli. And then I also get to reflect on how I reacted to it. And I can own that maybe I didn't react the best way, you know, because the only thing with a kid and, a, and, a, and an adult is as as an adult, you are required to hold yourself accountable. And we want to teach a children, right? We want to teach children accountability, but the best way they learn it is through modeled behavior, you know, because they don't have the developmental capacity as of yet to really understand um, the impact of their behaviors. But as adults, we have to teach them that. Um, and the best way they learn is through action and what they see. And so I think those are some things that, again, like I shared, I did in the classroom with kids, but I also had to have these conversations with parents and caregivers as well, because you are the starting point. Right. Mm-hmm. We're going to steal you, Mina. <laughs> we're going to take, take you to
0: Canada. We're, we're going to take you away from the US. We're going to have you here. <laughs> I think, yeah,
1: everything you said is so powerful. And what I really like that you said in your book is that when someone asks how you're doing, you say, I'm good. But good is not an emotion, right? Being able to name your emotions is really important. In- understanding what you're feeling and also being able to move forward and when we spoke with nurses a lot of them actually i would say the majority of nurses felt like they have been bullied on the job or they felt like um, they were part of what we call nurses eating their young which is essentially uh, older and more experienced nurses um, not wanting the younger ones to succeed and so when we get into the when we speak to more experienced nurses, they say, well, this is how, this is what happened to me, right? So they kind of continue the cycle. But what you're saying is we need to recognize and break that cycle. And that does take work and it takes time. But I'm hopeful that being nurses, that we have that skill, that we can do that and we can step in and we can make sure we start doing the right thing. Yeah, we need you in healthcare.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We need you in
1: healthcare. (laughs) So I had another question just around self-care. So as nurses, especially anyone in healthcare, we're always talking about self-care and practicing self-care. But the truth is a lot of people just feeling they're feeling like they're trying to keep their heads above water. They're just trying to get through the day. So do you have any suggestions on how people that are really struggling can start to integrate um, components of self-care?
2: Yeah, I mean... I think self-care requires us to be self-reflective first. And I think the issue with self-care is that people tend to use self-care as a crisis response instead of a prevention strategy. So, and I think that's why we often feel like self-care doesn't work for us because you waited until you were in an actual crisis to start doing something to tend to your well-being and it doesn't feel satisfying in the moment because you haven't been teaching your nervous system over time how to deal with stress. You wait for the stress to be um, really difficult to manage, to then try these new activities, and your body is just like, we're in a crisis right now, so we need anything and everything to relieve us from it. So I think the first thing that we need to do when we think about self-care is think of it as a prevention strategy and think about pre-care. What are the steps that I need to take to take care of myself so that when an emergency does happen, I already know where my first aid kit is and I have access to these resources that I know I'm going to need if I find myself struggling. So generally in the workplace, you know, we know the kinds of demands that are awaiting us. And so that is information already. I always say the starting point is to use discernment and reflect on what is the information you already have. You already know you have a very demanding job you already know that you have a job that might require you to work really, really long hours. You know you have a job that can impede on your ability to have work-life harmony. And so... What are the things that you need to be doing that you can engage in? That's a form of pre-care so that when you are starting a work shift, you are aware that this is how demanding my job is. These are the things that could go wrong. So, what are the remedies that I want to incorporate in my day if I know that literally in the middle of a lunch break, I can be interrupted? Or I think I'm about to clock out, and next thing I know, there's a crisis and I need to stay behind for an extra two to three hours. And so, I I really encourage people, um, whether you're nurses or any any job you know that you realize is demanding and requires a lot of your time, what those pre-care strategies look like. The first thing is I always encourage people to engage in strategies that help you manage your nervous system. Because when we are faced with a crisis, your nervous system is the first part of the body to react. To that crisis, so you can find yourself in a state of hyper or hypo arousal. Where um, hypo arousal is when you start to become really understimulated by the situation, and so you're so burnt out by it, you start to feel depressed, you start to feel lethargic, you start to just feel this great sense of numbness and emptiness. Where hyper arousal is, you start to feel this great sense of dread. So you're anxious all the time, you're panicked, you're literally just overstimulated by the situation. And you want to ask yourself, how do I get back to my optimal level of arousal? And so you can, one, start to utilize the body by engaging in deep breathing practices and learning meditation techniques. And I find that to be a really, really useful resource. And I go back to it a lot in my book, and I even outline different meditative and breathing practices people can use. And I do that because no matter where you go in life, you bring your body with you. And so (laughs) you have to learn how to literally use your body to deescalate other parts of the body that is in crisis mode. And I think that is a beautiful tool to have because sometimes we don't realize that some of our coping mechanisms require something tangible Or sometimes it requires another body, which is co-regulation, but there are going to be times where you're faced with a crisis and you have to self-regulate and the only thing you have with you is this vessel that you live in. So I think we all should know how to tap inward and say, how can I, this same body that's hurting also is the same body that knows how to heal. So what are the coping mechanisms that I can give my body so that my body knows how to respond when the body is in crisis. And that is why your breath is so important and why we talk a lot about the breath. Um, Other practices that I really encourage people to engage in is meditation and grounding work. Because sometimes when we're dealing with high levels of stress or even anxiety, we retreat into our head um, and it takes us away from the present moment. So we might engage in catastrophic thinking where we create these false scenarios and those scenarios get worse and worse and worse and worse as time goes on instead of just being grounded in the present and acknowledging the truth for what it is, reality for what it is, and learning to engage in radical acceptance around it to say, this is really hard right now. I'm having a really stressful day and I want to honor that this emotion exists. And the strategies that I can utilize in the moment is to engage in some breath work, I can also engage in other resources like, do I want to use music as a coping mechanism? Do I want to use journaling as a coping mechanism? Do I also want to use co-regulation as a co-mech coping mechanism where I'm talking to someone who is safe, nurturing, and caring, who is also going to now be able to manage my dysregulated nervous system. So self-care and pre-care looks different for everyone because no one person is the same. We all have different needs. But as I shared, I just think it's important that we think about what does taking care of our body look like so that when a crisis does come, you're not trying to figure it out in the moment. Because also remember that when you're dysregulated, your rational brain, your thinking brain literally is shut off in that moment. Yep. <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, it's hard. Hence why our fight, flight, freeze and fawning mechanisms kick in when we feel like we're exposed to a threat or from some form of danger. And in the aftermath, we start thinking it through and sometimes we'll say, why did I make that that decision? Well, your body had to make a choice for you. Right. Because your rational brain wasn't on and your body only was focused on survival in that moment, moving through the stressful moment, moving through the moment that was hard and difficult. But when you teach your body in advance, these are skills that we have and own, your body will also know how to react to a really difficult response. But it's like learning how to swim. You have to go through all these steps before you can dive into 12 feet of water. So if your body is just thrown into 12 feet of water and it never learned how to float, it never learned how to, um, you know, all the different mechanisms to swim out of 12 feet, you're going to panic and you're going to succumb to whatever Is going to happen in that moment, that negative consequence. But when you teach your body, these are all the things we need to do so that in case we ever get thrown into 12 feet of water, we know how to swim out of it. And that is what pre-care and self-care looks like.
0: Wow. That is like extremely powerful. I think that there's so much there that you know um, that I took away yeah <laughs> and, I, I, and, <laughs> and, and, like I am someone who tells people like you know make sure you you see a therapist and there's just so much
1: yeah, and I, I think that you explain yeah, this you. self-care in a way that I've never heard it before, which I love, right? Like we need to be doing this all the time. It's like we we have said you can't self-care your way out of a broken healthcare system, right. but we should be doing these things all the time and we should train our bodies to be able to swim when we're 12 feet under, so to speak. So I really love that analogy. And I think that, yeah, we should be talking about this more and, and developing our own strategies for coping with things that come our way. And I also like what you said about not expecting things to go perfectly like we know what more or less what we got into when when we started shift work and so just understanding and accepting that to some degree I think is really powerful
0: yeah I mean that that whole model of self-care because I because you're right we think about self-care when we're in crisis we're like oh man crap hit the fan now now I need to go eat the cake and it's like maybe we should have been doing you know having a little bit of that slice beforehand or you know building up that you know self-resiliency when that you know when crab hits the fan we've already have some of those mechanisms in place to kind of soften that blow and I think I just think to myself okay you know I've got work to do after this episode I I'm I'm so grateful for the conversation that we've had today there's just so much that people can take away and and we're so thankful that you wrote about owning our own struggles because again that's a huge part too where you know we might have some childhood trauma that we haven't really reflected on and and it really does change the way in our perceptions the way that we interact with the world so again Mina just we're we're gonna steal you (laughs) we're gonna gonna get you to Canada but again yeah it's just such powerful information and I, I can't wait for our guests to listen Last question, but I, we we probably have another question after this. Um, we see that you're on the advisory committee uh, for Wonder Mind, a company co-founded by Selena Gomez. Could you tell us a little bit about the that work and how that role came to be?
2: Um, yeah, so being advise- an advisor is pretty much me assisting them in just different mental health topics that we are trying to explore and educate society on and so how can we also take these really hard topics and make them digestible and make them pleasant to listen to instead of something that feels scary and daunting but also weighty, packed with so much research and information that you don't really obtain or absorb much of it. Um, And so that's what that work really looks like. And I got the role um, pretty much from the work that I do on social media. Um, That's pretty much how they found me. That's generally how most of my um, media publications come about anyway. So, you know, I do encourage people that if they need a little more insight to resources to check out the Wondermind blog.
0: Yeah, I mean... Your work is amazing. Mm -hmm. I'm
1: I'm absolutely blown away. Absolutely. And I think it's really great to hear about all the different opportunities that you've been given just by your passion and the experience that you've had with uh, mental health. Is there anything else that we didn't touch on that you wanted to share with
2: us? No, I think that this was a really, really wonderful conversation. Um, And I really just hope that listeners walk away from here Thinking about the different ways that one, they can practice community care. Um, And that's why I have so many exercises outlined in my book as well, because I know that this is hard work and I know it's work we need guidance on. So every single chapter is just full of resources and different exercises people that can engage in um, so that you can take action. And I think it's just important to remember that. You have to teach yourself that you can do hard things. And the only way you can do that is by doing, you know, we can't manifest a new life just with thought. We have to engage in the hard work through action. And that's the number one takeaway that I want people to know. You know, I love that, that we
0: can do hard things. And I think that, you know, although it may be hard, it's, it's definitely rewarding. So thank you so much, Mina, for coming on to the Greeners podcast. Where can people find you?
2: They can find me on my website, www.minab.com. And Mina is spelled M-I-N-A-A-B.com. And then you can also find me on social media. So you can find me using my name, Mina B, on LinkedIn, Facebook, as well as Instagram.
0: Thank you so much. And make sure those that are listening that you pick up a great copy of Owning Our Own Struggles by Mina B. Thank you so much.
1: Thanks, Mina. Thank you.